0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, we're so glad you joined us on this edition of Women Worth Knowing. And as always, I'm Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut, And we have so much fun just bringing you these women from Christian history that we have found fascinating. And Jasmine and I found ourselves conversing and thinking Mm. other people would be just like, who are you talking about? And (laughs) we know that you probably are a woman worth knowing. And so if you have a story or you have a story of someone else, we'd love Love, love, love to hear that story, read it, and we might even share it. Yes. Probably we will. We have before. We have before, and we <laughs> will do it again. So, Jasmine, where did they send it into?
1: Well, you can go to www.cccm.com, or or sorry, women.cccm.com or we have an email address, www.cccm.com. So you can check out both of those spots. Yeah, and if you have any
0: comments or anything that – even questions about some of the women that we've highlighted, Mm -hmm. we can answer those questions. Jasmine usually answers all the questions. Sometimes (laughs) I throw in a word here or there, but she's so good at that. Uh, Or if you have, again, a story or if you want to know of a book or if you have another book that you want to recommend to us.
1: Yes, please. We love recommendations. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, over the next couple weeks here, I'm going to be sharing somebody that was recommended by one of our listeners. So. <laughs> That's excellent. So am I. Yeah. I just How heard? about yes, that? Yay. Yes. Hey, okay. So right
0: now we're in um, what we call our medical phase.
1: Yeah, we're sure. g- medical. Yeah, we are. We're in a medical phase, folks. We started that recently. We we're talking
0: about doctors and mm-hmm. nurses and women worth knowing in the medical field. Mm-hmm. And we already highlighted Elizabeth Blackwell, yes. who was the first, uh, female doctor somebody said oh in america and i said no in america or england because mm. she actually got registered um as the first female in the general practitioner's list in england mm. so that was pretty amazing but it was also in england that elizabeth blackwell the first female doctor actually met the woman we're talking about today florence hey. Nightingale.
1: Hey. nice tie in there hey, hey, i like you. that so yes we are going to be looking at Florence Nightingale, probably a a very familiar name to many of our listeners, Um, and just as Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman doctor, um, Florence Nightingale, she wasn't the first nurse, uh, but she really was is considered the founder of modern nursing as a profession.
0: And and Jasmine and I were talking about this before uh, the show: the fact that that other nurses tend to be thieves,
1: and oh man, there was some. Bad. Yeah. Nursing was not a good profession before this, as we're going to see. Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah. So she really brought it into what we think of it today as something respectable, something where there's expertise. (laughs) I think (laughs) nursing was
0: more like a caretaker.
1: Yeah, like you, it was almost yeah. like a grown-up babysitter,
0: kind of. And these women who were in this profession could not be trusted. In fact, even in Elizabeth Blackwell's day, as she was working with nurses. They were stealing. They were drunk. Mm-hmm. They were definitely stealing from the patients, as I already mentioned. So but, bad. Uh, there was a lot of bad stuff going on, mm-hmm. and of course, no hygiene, not changing sheets yep, all or anything. And this is where Florence Nightingale. You will see made a huge
1: difference yes, to absolutely. the profession of nursing absolutely she's considered one of the greatest figures in western medicine because of that and so um her story begins uh in england you know like little, <laughs> no in surprise a there village yes yes and she <laughs> was the daughter of a very well-to-do british couple francis and william nightingale and they were married in 1818 and right away they had their two daughters uh their first daughter they Had was in 1819. And this is uh, unfortunate. They named her Parthenope because that was the Greek city that they were visiting at the time when she was born. I'm like, oh, that poor babe, Parthenope? Really? Anyway, so fortunately for Florence, when she was born in 1820, she was born in Florence, Italy. And so she got a better name. So (laughs) it's just like it was really based on where the parents (laughs) were. Location, location, location. Absolutely. It's so important. I'm like, man, she really got the better end of the deal on that one. So Um, being born into privilege, uh, Florence grew up on various landed estates. That's where they lived. They just, and and they traveled a lot, very cosmopolitan family. Um, in 1839, she and a few of her cousins actually were presented to Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria will come into our story again a little later. So that's how, I guess, socially upscale they were, but her mom really was a social climber, um, very aggressive and wanting to make a name for her family her daughters, uh, but Florence herself was was very awkward <laughs> in social settings. She didn't feel comfortable in that environment. She was very strong-willed. And so she butted heads with her mom a lot. And even her sister. Her sister was a little bit more into the social scene, I guess you could say. and And Florence just was not interested. She, early on, really just wanted to... I don't know, do something more meaningful. She wanted some more substance in her life, spiritual pursuits. Um, And she said during this time when she's being kind of dragged into society by her mom and sister, uh, she said, I wandered about in the desert seeking bread and finding none. And she tried to fit in. She tried to, you know, go into society, as they say, but it just didn't satisfy her. In fact, uh, one time, a family friend died in childbirth. And so Florence was thinking, oh, I have an out. And so she said, hey, could I just stay with the family and and take care of the baby? You know, because the woman's baby had survived and not her. Could I just take care of the baby? The husband's overwhelmed. That way I don't have to go into society this year. But her mom and sister were like, nope. They refused. They forced her to come anyway, and to go into London and and go to balls and parties and things like that. She you know, was it's not interesting interested. to bring up that this time was
0: about the time that you have many of the Jane Austen novels. Yeah, took there place. you go. Yeah. So, I mean, when you see those movies and you see how mm-hmm. like Bath was such a social center Ugh. and how it went, and there was so much protocol for the wealthy mm. that you understand some of the pressures that Florence was under and the atmosphere that
1: she was in. That's actually a really good point because we're going to see that pressure really was uh, legitimate. You know, it wasn't easy for these women. As we know, even with Elizabeth Blackwell's story, it was not easy to try to go against that norm. It wasn't like, ah, I'm going to just live my life. It wasn't, there was so much pressure. So Mm -hmm. uh, Florence... Was actually kind of, not only was she socially awkward, she was a little bit sickly. It's interesting because um, she had weak wrists, and so she didn't learn how to write until she was 11 or 12. Wow. Which is really, yeah, unusual. Uh, Another thing, uh, another health issue she had had to do with her throat. She had throat problems of some sort, and it's interesting because she loved music and probably would have pursued that, maybe pursued a vocal career, but she had those health issues that kept her from singing. But it's interesting because later um, she would see this as a blessing from the Lord to free her up for what she believed was her true calling, as we're going to see. In fact, um, she later acknowledged that and recognized God's hand on her life in the privileges she had, but also in the disappointing things in her life, the challenges. And she said, God has always led me of himself. Now, I do need to point out, <laughs> and Sherlyn and I have kind of talked about this a little bit, Florence Nightingale had a kind of an interesting spirituality Um kind of a mixed bag and and you know we've we've looked at some other women that maybe were a little bit unique in that area her family started out unitarian that was very very popular it was really in vogue during that time and then later they became Anglican. And then at one point she contemplated Catholicism, but she didn't really jibe with that, with their full theology. She just liked the nuns and their service and ministry and stuff. So she's kind of drawing from a mixed bag here. She didn't believe in miracles. so but you could see with
0: the nuns how she would be drawn to that yeah. because they were the best nurses at that they time. They really and were. In fact, when people were sick and if you wanted a quality... Hospice help. or yeah. help for your mm-hmm. for your loved one. You would usually have them go to a convent yeah. if they were a female, because that that's would be true. the best care. So you can see why she would be attracted to that. And yes. you know they they worked with unity. They had laws about cleanliness. So
1: I could see that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that's actually I think a big part of. Florence's own relationship with God, she appreciated their practicality, the practical service and ministry. And I think sometimes she felt like some of the established denominations, which we've seen, there were a lot of very churchy religious people who didn't live out their faith. That was something she really had a hard time with in some of the Anglican churches that she saw. Is like, where's just the loving character of God being actually lived out here, guys? We You know, you're just going to church and going home and now God's you see how Elizabeth life. Blackwell could have been such a great influence on her life because mm-hmm. Elizabeth
0: Blackwell was like an outspoken Christian yes. and felt like God had opened every single door for her. And so, but absolutely, I'm, yes. I'm getting ahead of No, no, you. that's
1: good. That's good. <laughs> and so actually, just since we're talking about, you know, her spirituality and that call she felt from the Lord, uh, what happened was when she was 16, um, she had what she later described as kind of an epiphany, just this spiritual awakening. Um, She was, I'm not sure she was attending this church or she was just, she just was, um, she knew she had a friendship with this uh, congregational pastor, Jacob Abbott, and she was really inspired by his practical ministry. And she just felt like the Lord awakened something in her. She started working with underprivileged people. She was so drawn to that. And kind of like, if you remember with Elizabeth Fry, how she was so drawn to, the poor and mentally ill people. I mean, it was a definite calling from God. And, you know, she Florence had that same attraction to the needy and felt that God clearly was calling her into that kind of practical ministry, like elizabeth Fry, that that very hands, uh, you know, hands on boots on the ground kind of uh, relationship with God. Um, one thing I liked about her was, um when she was helping the poor, She really struggled with how to encourage them sincerely because she knew in her own life she had so many comforts and privileges. I mean, she was from an elite upper-class family and everything. And she said, man, how can I make this more genuine? Because how can I, you know, how can I be Christ-like? Because Christ made himself like his brethren. So how can I do that more? And Cheryl and I talk all the time about that concept of being incarnational. And I do love that about her. She really wanted to line up with the character of Jesus and go incarnationally and be in people's lives genuinely, not like, oh, I'm rich. I'm here to do a good deed and go home, but to really be among the people. Um, So her dad was big on education for his girls, especially Florence, because she was so precocious and so intelligent. He's like, okay, I need to be more hands-on with her and really teach her all I know. Okay, but this is novel for this time.
0: Yes. this yeah. Even Elizabeth Blackwell's father, because he was a Quaker, he was an egalitarian, yeah, so he yeah, wanted yeah. all his girls educated. But at that point, most families felt it was a waste to educate the women. You only educated your sons. And so, especially in the upper class, I mean, they might have a governess, and if they learned to mm, read, write, yeah. play piano, maybe
1: speak a little French, that was more than enough. <laughs> totally. And so
0: for her to have... Such an education,
1: yes, yes, such an extensive one, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right, because usually it would be more about just just some nice, fine skills, ladylike skills, mm-hmm. you know, to develop. But, I mean, her dad went all in. I mean, she learned Latin, Greek, German, French. Uh, Italian. She she studied literature, religious studies, um, a lot of the mystics, which is interesting. She got you know into some of that Saint John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, history, even math, which was a big deal. Actually, her mom didn't want her to learn math for some reason. Math was a real man's subject, yeah, right? I know, is that funny? Uh, but her dad was like, "Nope, you're you're learning it all." But um, when Florence, you know, out of all this, you know, you'd think that they would be so liberal-minded and open, but when Florence decided she wanted to learn nursing, her family was like, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, we draw the line here. <laughs> um, for one thing, they wanted her to marry well and settle down and raise a family that was, you know, customary for women of her station. She was uh, a good-looking girl by all accounts, well-to-do, and so she definitely had her suitors and a lot of opportunities, and that was what her parents really had planned for her. Um, in fact, when she was 24, um, she had a cousin. I know this sounds strange, but a lot of times people would marry their second and third cousins, which is kind of like distant, not like, not quite like the inbreeding kind of a thing <laughs> that we might be thinking of. Uh, but there was a distant cousin, Henry Nicholson, who was pursuing her. And uh, she turned him down. And apparently it caused all of these family problems uh, between the two. Again, sides of the family, the Nicholsons and the Nightingales, they got in some big argument. Florence's mom and sister were so mad at her over this. So you start seeing some of that, like Cheryl was mentioning, the family pressures, that started to really weigh on her because she loved her mom. She loved her sister. She and her sister were very close. They just didn't see eye to eye. And so that was really hard. And then a few years later in 1849, a very, what we would call a, or what they would call a suitable young man, his name was Richard Milnes, and he proposed to her. Um, and she actually was really attracted to him. Even intellectually, they were on the same page, um, all of that sort of a thing. But she said that she believed her moral, active nature requires satisfaction, and it would not find it in this life. Uh, again, back then, I remember talking about this with Hannah Moore several episodes back. A lot of times, if you wanted to, you know, pursue anything uh, educationally, vocationally, in those days. A lot of women really couldn't get married because that would pretty much sideline you and you would not really be able to pursue anything else. You'd have to just be a wife and mother and it would limit uh, any other, you know, call you felt you had. Plus the
0: mortality rate for women having children was huge. That's a good point. Yeah. And women's life expectancy was uh, quite short in those days Mm -hmm. for a married woman. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. There are a lot more widowers in those days than you see today. Oh, yeah. And remarriage is all over Mm -hmm. just because of that. Yeah. Yeah, that. but this was where that call from God she had received when she was 16, it was just so strong by this time. I mean, we're getting into her mid-late 20s now, and, and she just knew marriage would hold her back from the call that she felt God had for her. So uh, she had another marriage offer in her 30s, and it's kind of funny because after she turned him down, he ended up marrying her sister. So, you know, it worked out in the end, stayed in the family, I guess, um, but— Social, like again, social convention, just to underscore this, it really was a big point of contention with her family. But there was another reason that they really were not keen on her nursing interests. And this is something we've already kind of alluded to at the beginning of the podcast. The fact that nursing was so not a noble profession, it wasn't valued, it wasn't proper. Uh, in the 19th century, it was, as you know, Cheryl was mentioning earlier, done by lower class women. Uh, they were usually untrained, negligent, often drunk. Uh, there were even suggestions that um, there was some yes, Imp- yes, yes, impropriety was going on between the nurses and the patients. They just, like Cheryl said, they were just glorified caretakers that didn't really ha- Plus, know what they were doing. You were
0: in such close contact with illness. And that was something also to be avoided because if somebody was ill, you know, you got away from them. They were supposed to be quarantined. And a nurse was someone who went in and exposed herself Mm. and then therefore would expose the family to illnesses. And this was before inoculations. This was, and again, also during Florence's time, they were not practicing sanitation. exactly um, Or hygiene. Yeah. And that's That's, again, we'll get to that, but this is where she's also
1: groundbreaking. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, they were just beginning to understand germs. I mean, that was just starting to come into, you know, to light at this point. And so— Uh, That was very dangerous. Also, working in medicine meant that you would have to learn human anatomy and you'd have to perform certain tasks that in the Victorian society were very um, intimate, you know, too physically intimate for a proper, well-bred young lady. And so that just seemed so scandalous, so inappropriate. And so, again, the struggle that Florence had to deal with between what she felt was her calling and then her family's expectations on her. And yet she was really undeterred at this point. Um, After all these years, like I said, that calling was so strong that she decided, okay, I guess I'm gonna just have to teach myself. Now we should say that, um, and and this has kind of been alluded to, in the convents and then even in some of the uh, Protestant communities, there were nursing sisterhoods. They were just starting to come out with a little bit of training and respectability, but that was still so new and unfamiliar. And so um, Florence had her work cut out for her. So in 1846, uh, she had a friend in parliament. And his name was Sidney Herbert. And so he gave her access to government blue books. Um, I think blue book for us is like what you use to find a used car. But uh, in England, a little different. Yeah, Kelly Blue Books, that's right. <laughs> little different over there. So these were for um, these were reports and references on hospital management and sanitation. So this is just a bunch of like figures and data. And so he gave her access to all of this. And it sounds super dry and boring, but Florence loved this and soaked it in. So good thing her dad had allowed her to learn math and statistics. I'm thinking the same thing. Exactly. So, I mean, yep, God knew. She had such a mind for this. The details and the statistics, she could remember things, bring them back to mind, and apply them to specific situations. It really was a gift. She became the first woman in the Royal Statistical Society and uh, one of her relatives said that if Florence was ever exhausted, seeing a column of figures, like numbers, could totally revive her. I'm like, whoa, wow! So, so ultimate STEM person here, you know, one of those math nerds. So Florence also uh, traveled a lot during this time, so she's, you know, learning all of this information, taking it all in, and then she starts meeting people that continued to shape that sense of calling and purpose. Um, she met a Catholic nun in Rome. Again, she's starting to really have an affinity for what the nuns were doing. She met a British missionary in Athens, an American missionary whose name was Mrs. Hill. Don't know a lot about her, but these people were all kind of starting to shape that sense of purpose and call. Uh, there's even a story that Dr. and Mrs. Uh, Julia Ward Howe might be a familiar name. She wrote The Battle Hymn of the Republic, if you remember that song. They were visiting her family, and she talked to Dr. Howe you know, about the possibility of going into nursing and, you know, what do you think is this— You know, unsuitable for me. And he said, "Well, I will say it's unusual, Florence, but I really think you should act on your inspiration." So, people like that, planting those seeds and encouraging her, helped her get over the you know stigma of all of this. Uh, And probably one of the most impacting moments of her travels was um, when she visited the groundbreaking Kaiser'sworth Deaconess Institution in Germany. So, this was founded um, in 1836 by a Lutheran pastor. His name was Theodor Fliedner, and it's cool. He was inspired by uh, the practical ministry of ministry of the Moravians, but also Elizabeth Fry. He loved Elizabeth Fry. So these people, you know, Elizabeth Blackwell, Elizabeth Fry, they keep coming back into these stories because they were so groundbreaking, they encouraged others. And uh, Pastor Fliedner loved Elizabeth Fry and how she mobilized women to get into ministry to the poor and the needy. Um, and we know, of course, prisoners and stuff. And so at his institute, he really wanted to continue that that mindset of training women in various skills, uh, he said, of that practical brand of spiritual service. Like we're putting, again, our our uh, feet to our faith. We're living out our walk with Jesus. And this
0: is the first time that really they're talking about training. Yes. Training people. And this is a big word, training people, because yep. nurses were just nurses by proxy. Mm-hmm. Somebody needed care. You needed a job. You became a nurse. Exactly. And so the idea of training
1: is groundbreaking mm-hmm. at this time. Yep. Absolutely. And so she actually did stay there as a student for a little while in 1851. And that training continued to equip and prepare her. Uh, Then in 1853, uh, she went to France. And, uh, you know, this was where she really started to, as she said, get immersed in nursing, moved by spirituality. And this was where she got really connected with those Catholic nuns. (laughs) She started serving with the Sisters of Charity. Uh, there in France. And her biographer said that it was at this point, again, these are all just seeds being planted along the way, preparation for the call that God had for her. And uh, her biographer said that this solidified the meaning of her call, immersed her in service, and educated her in organizational structures and systematized programs that would actually or help her actualize her aspirations of tending to the needy. So this is starting to give her more of a sense of systematizing, like, wow, we need to be organized. We need to start you know changing the way this whole this whole system works because the nursing system is broken if there is even a system. And so she starts applying all of these things she gets a position as a superintendent at a certain establishment but then dun 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 war breaks out the Crimean war uh, which is not as familiar of a war to us so I just want to mention for a second in case you haven't really heard a lot about the Crimean war. It was a three, four year war, 1853 to 1856. And it was sparked by the Russians. Oh my goodness. The Russians ex- being, uh, they had these aggressive expansionist aims. They were trying to come out and take over Turkey and all of this. And and so England saw that, uh-oh, they're getting, the Russians are getting aggressive. They're a threat. We need to kind of jump in and curb this threat. And this happened all the time. If you you know study history, you realize these nations are always trying to keep each other in check. Got to keep Germany in check. Got to keep France in check. Uh-oh, Spain's going into the new world. They're getting wild. We need to go in and keep them from getting too strong. So that's kind of what this was all about, uh, England jumping in to try to, you know, Stop the Russians. And it's been called, interestingly, the first modern war. You know, we often think of World War One as the first modern war, but a lot of precedents were set during the Crimean War that set the stage for World War One. This is also before the Civil War in the yes. United
0: States. Yes, that too. And, and so these it, yeah. are like when guns are first beginning to really be used. So yeah. The Napoleon Wars and the Civil War and the mm. Crimean War. Lots so before of before that yeah. it was sword fighting. It was yeah. more it was different. Yeah. And so, well, I know they had some guns
1: in the Revolutionary War, but most of it was... Oh, but they were so primitive. Primitive. So primitive. Mm-hmm. You take forever to reload. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were crazy, not very useful. Mm-hmm. So yes, exactly. So there was a lot of uh, technological advancement in weaponry mm-hmm. that started to take place. I didn't think they had the
0: Gatling gun by this time. Oh, the Gatling gun. Interesting. Which is it, a, a precursor to the machine gun. Uh-huh. So they would have like a rotating... Mm. It was like what they used for a
1: butter churn, you know, like yeah, you that kind of doing it, and a thing. And it, yeah. it would shoot out bullets. You yeah, know? yeah. Oh, that's good, but but much bulkier. And then obviously, the oh, so machine bulky. guns yes. were streamlined. Yes. So um, this was the first war that used telegraph communications. Uh, it was extensively covered by the media like never before. They were mass-produced and, as we were talking about, greatly improved weapons. Railways were used more. Um, They even had improvements in troop nutrition. Nobody had ever thought about that before. And clothing, and here's a fun fact, folks. The cardigan sweater was invented during this war, and they named it after the Earl of Cardigan who led the Charge of the Light Brigade. So, anyway. Another thing. I I forgot that the Charge of the Light Brigade was in the Crimean War. And, you know, that's what we'll do next. Clothes you should know about. (laughs) Yes. Clothes you should know. That's our (laughs) sequel (laughs) podcast. So... All that was needed at this point was improved medical care, right? We've improved everything else. And so that's where Florence comes in. Because remember, she had that friend in Parliament named Sidney Herbert, right? And it just so happened that during the war, he had become the Secretary of State. And so he contacted Florence because he knew she was sharp and she was innovative and kind of a little more cutting edge in this whole concept of nursing. And so in October of 1854, he said to her, hey, I I need you to get out there onto the field. You have to organize the medical treatment happening here because the soldiers are desperate. It's just a disaster. It was such a mess. And obviously, they couldn't go on like this. And so he sent her off. I think, too,
0: because of the caliber, like we said, of of this weaponry, people were losing limbs. And it was—the injuries were more drastic. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. conditions uh, when she got there, I, I know you're going to talk about yeah, yeah. this in just a second, but they were just like they were just piling bodies, so bad. And, um, and the sheets were like, if if someone died, they they didn't even change the sheets. They no. would just put the next sick person off on those and,
1: yep. same sheets. Yep, so gross. And so, <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, you know, Florence is like, okay, I mean, it was such a desperate situation. She sensed, like, okay, this is urgent. So within literally just a matter of days, she rounded up kind of a mixed bag of nurses. There were Catholics, Protestants, middle, lower class. She just grabbed everybody, and they headed for Skatari. That's kind of a famous uh, battle battle area in the Crimean War. So they go to Skatari, Turkey. That's where the British hospital base was. And it's neat because um, Florence gave all the nurses uniforms and they were super unflattering, gross, kind of ugly. They didn't fit well. But the neat thing about these is that they were they were equalizers. They put all these women, lower, middle, upper class, it didn't matter what you were, you're all on equal ground. And we talked about this. I think Cheryl talked about this when we were looking at Catherine Booth and the Salvation Army. Remember, the Salvation Army uniform made sure there was level a level playing field, which in British culture was so... It was unique. also, though,
0: um, so that the women wouldn't be raped. Yeah. So oh, yes. So they wouldn't look, oh. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So they wouldn't look sexual. Yes. They wanted to give <laughs> them a so uniformity <laughs> that they were all one, and to touch one, you touch them all. Yes. So it, this was this was dangerous because the enemy, if, if these nurses were taken in battle, mm. it was very dangerous for them.
1: Yes, absolutely. They had to keep their hands off of Miss Nightingale's ladies. And so the, obviously the hospital was a disaster. It was basically located on uh, a cesspool. And That's so right. water was super contaminated and rash and the men are lying in their own waste. You know, But it took them some and- time to realize it was a cesspool. And I
0: remember reading that she went in and they were very upset with her when she went in there. She was not a popular figure. I mean, we no, think like, not at all. here I am to save the day. Yeah. But they did no. not. Uh, respect her. They resented her. They resented her reforms when
1: she first came. Yeah. And she's bringing all these women in. And the men, the male doctors are like, wait a minute, what do you know? And, you know, very intimidated, not intimidated, but um, yeah, there was just that sense of pushback. Like, well, wait a minute.
0: We're talking about a hard complementarian mm. society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And women should be at home taking care of children, married, but they didn't see women. I mean, if there was one thing women shouldn't be, it's on the battlefield
1: right where exactly. all there's is war. In
0: fact, this is what the men were going to protect women from so they would never see this.
1: Yeah, Jasmine, exactly.
0: We, you have so much more to say about Florence. We want to talk a little bit more about her friendship with Elizabeth Blackwell and what they planned together and what she did after uh, the Crimean War. But we also want to talk more about her involvement in the Crimean War. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ask you to come back. This is another cliffhanger because she's <laughs> just gotten to turkey It's Skitari. Yep. Skitari and it's it's really worse than she expected we're going to talk about some of the reaction of some of the other nurses when they saw it and so please please come back and join us and again this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine that saying thank you for joining us on Women Worth Knowing and don't forget <laughs> to write in or yes. to like us whatever site you're listening to this podcast on please like us yes because we, we like you we do bye <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Olna. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends.